0: I'm Dan kurtz and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview.
1: The danger is going to be a Russia that there's this deep sense of bitterness that they have been badly treated. The tendency would be to blame not their own leaders, but the tendency to blame outside forces, which is what happened in Germany after the First World War.
0: Ukraine's counteroffensive is shaping up to be the biggest military operation in Europe since World War II. There is a lot of focus on drones and satellites and other new technologies. But if you squint, the battlefield scenes from Ukraine look like they could be from the Western Front in 1916. The historian Margaret MacMillan writes in a new essay for Foreign Affairs that the resonance of World War I goes well beyond the images. The history can help us understand what might come next in the war itself. Just as importantly, it holds a warning about what happens after the fighting stops, when the end of one war can lay the groundwork for another. Margaret, thanks so much for doing this.
1: Well, thanks for asking me. So
0: you have an essay in the July August issue of Foreign Affairs that considers the lessons of World War 1 especially, but also the World Wars more generally in the period between them and tries in a in a subtle but fascinating way to use those lessons to make some sense of where things We'll go from here in Ukraine and also in great power relations more broadly. What was really striking to me in looking back at those months leading up to the war in Ukraine is that there were basically two analogies invoked. And one one was Versailles and one was Munich. Those in the the Versailles camp would focus on NATO expansion and you know argue that we had failed to adequately take account of Russian security concerns in the wake of the Cold War. And that had led to the rise of Putin and Putin's re- re- revanchism. On the other hand, you have those who point to our failure to respond adequately after the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 or the annexation of Crimea and initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and point to Munich and our our failure to stand up to to bullies in a way that invites further aggression. So as you look at those analogies, what's the right way to understand them and and the, way, the right way to use them to make sense of the, the path that got us to this war?
1: I think I'd say don't try and fit them onto the Ukraine-Russia situation too neatly. You know, I think that um, what happened at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 was unfortunate. It it did leave many in Germany feeling that the country had been very badly treated and and feeling, of course, that they hadn't lost the war, which in fact they had. And, of course, with the Munich analogy, um, you know, this was for its time a decent and, and, in my view, reasonable attempt to try and avoid a Second World War. I mean, the people in power in countries such as France and Britain and the, the leading democracies were very well aware of what the war had cost. What I think we're leaving out when, when we try and impose the analogies is, is the decisions being made by people in power at the time. And so when I look at what happened at the Paris Peace Conference, which resulted in the Treaty of Versailles and, and other treaties with the defeated nations, but the Treaty of Versailles was the important one because it was with Germany, what people have assumed that it led directly to the Second World War, which left out an awful lot of decision-making, left out the fact of Hitler. You know, I don't think we can subtract those who are in power making the decisions from what actually happened. And I think the same thing is true of Munich, that if the leaders of Britain and France had been dealing with anyone other than Hitler, the Second World War might not have happened. And so I think although the West was perhaps tactless and, and I think often blundered in the way it dealt with Russia, in the aftermath of the Cold War. I don't think the expansion of NATO in itself was sufficient grounds for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It didn't provoke Russia to invade Ukraine. It became an excuse rather than a a provocation. And I think what you really have to do, and I think it's the same with, with the outbreak of the Second World War, what you have to do is look at who was actually making decisions at the time and what those people were thinking. And I think in the case of Ukraine, I would call it President Putin's war. I think if someone else had been in power, it might well not have happened. And I think he was motivated not so much, although it existed by the deep sense of humiliation that he personally and many Russians felt as a result of their treatment after the end of the Cold War. And, and going from being a great power, as Britain is finding today, to being a lesser power is never easy, I think. It never leaves people feeling satisfied. But I think he was motivated by something much more. He was motivated by his own understanding of history, by a, a willingness and a desire to rebuild the empire of the Tsars, Um, He models himself. He talks about Peter the Great as his predecessor. He talks about Ivan the Terrible as as someone to be admired. He talks about Stalin as someone to be admired. And so I've always thought, and perhaps this is a historian's bias, that who is actually in a position of great power making the decisions matters. And that personality and and that thinking and, and whatever their ideas and assumptions are actually matter. I mean, if Putin had been another sort of Russian leader, he would have done a calculation and said, it's not worth invading Ukraine. I can destabilize it. I can deal with it in other ways, as, as Russia had done with Georgia, for example, but I don't need to invade it. It would cost too much. But he didn't make those calculations because he was thinking of other things.
0: And you could say the same about Zelensky, if anyone other than Zelensky or plenty of other leaders other than Zelensky who would have been in power in Ukraine, and you could imagine that history playing out in very different terms as well.
1: I think many statesmen in the world have and, and continue to like to compare themselves to Winston Churchill, and usually I find the analogy flawed. But in the case of Zelensky, he was the right man at the right time, and I think that was true. Churchill, who you know wasn't always a great um, political leader, but Churchill was there in May and June 1940 when France fell, and I think without Churchill as Prime Minister, it's unlikely that Britain would have been able to fight on. That he could have rallied. No one. I'm not sure anyone else could have rallied British public opinion and given the British confidence that ultimately they would prevail. And I think the same thing is true about Zelensky. I mean, he's even more an improbable wartime leader than Winston Churchill was, who, who, after all, was an experienced politician who knew a lot about war. I mean, Zelensky was someone who had made his name in the entertainment business. He'd been very successful, he'd run his own company, but he was not seen as a serious political figure. And I think his determination and his, his physical courage when he said he wouldn't leave in the war, that he was not going to get out in the face of, of the invasion. Although, of course, we know he was under threat of assassination squads and, and fr- from the Russians. And so, yes, I think he's made a huge difference. And I think he has surprised perhaps his fellow Ukrainians and certainly surprised most of the rest of the world by the way he's done it.
0: You wrote a piece very early in the war for foreign affairs that focused on this question of leadership and how we kind of factor individuals and their unique attributes and the characteristics they bring to the, to the war. And trying to make sense of it, there was a a great line that I've come back to frequently since the war has started. I'm quoting you here. Although the question of leadership is an old one, think of the attention paid to Alexander the Great or Napoleon, it has tended to be overlooked as experts focus on systems or quantifiable measures of power. On the one hand, that seems very compelling. On the one hand, it does seem analytically challenging in that When you look at individuals, you can, you know, often end up engaging in armchair psychology or kind of literary analysis and trying to make sense of what will happen. What's the right way as a historian, as someone trying to make sense of events in the world today to factor those individuals in and try to consider how their own attributes, their understandings of history and their national position are going to drive events?
1: It's a very tricky question, and I don't have a, I'm not sure I have a very good answer, but I think what you have to do is try and strike a balance. And I think perhaps historians have always been more conscious of, of the role of leadership simply because we we've looked in detail at how the processes actually work. And I think political scientists have sometimes been uncomfortable with it because they want to make analytically sound models. They want to be able to demonstrate that they are based on sound research. And, and dealing with an individual, of course, is tricky. You can't quantify it. And I think, I noticed, however, that there is more interest in, among political scientists, particularly those doing international relations, in leadership these days. It seems to me more articles have been written trying to assess the the role of, of individuals. But we can never, of course, abstract individuals from their own times. They are products of the forces of their own times. They come out of certain worlds. They think in certain ways. They certainly have certain individual characteristics. But even those characteristics will have been shaped and molded by their own worlds and by their own experiences. I mean, I think of, of models of, of the ways in which to balance this of so the, the great biographies that Ian Kershaw, the British historian, did of, of Hitler and the extraordinary biography, which I think is as great, um, which is still underway, that Stephen Kotkin is doing of Stalin. And Kotkin's biography of Stalin, I've, I've been reading the first two volumes and, and waiting anxiously for the third, is really seems to me a model of how you balance the individual with the times. And, and he makes us understand that Stalin was a product of the czarist era. That he probably, as was Lenin, that they couldn't have come out of another sort of world and that they were formed partly in response to that world. And so, yes, I think we, we have to avoid focusing too much on the individual leader as if they have complete um, freedom and autonomy to do whatever they want. They work with the circumstances in which they find themselves, and they also are products of those circumstances, even though in the end they may change the worlds in which they live. They come out of certain worlds.
0: Once the war started, and there have been a lot of surprises since the the early days of the war, but one of them has been the ways in which this war looks a lot like wars a century ago. On the other hand, you see lots of new technology at play in this war. You have Starlink satellites, you have lots of drones. So it seems like this sort of interesting combination of old and new. Are you surprised by the ways in which this does resemble the wars you have studied Historically, much more? And how do you make sense of this kind of interplay of the old and new?
1: Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And I don't think most people, including me, certainly would have predicted the war would turn out like this. And and that what has, I think, mattered is that when you actually have an invasion, you have to send people in. You have to control the territory you're invading. And I think we've forgotten that that cannot be done entirely, or at least at the moment, cannot be done entirely by, by technology, that you actually have to have boots on the ground. And the War in Ukraine has resembled the First and Second World Wars, that actual physical control by the invaders of the territory is what they wanted. Of course, they thought it would be easy when the Russians thought it would happen quickly. I think they thought they'd be having a victory parade in in Kyiv within about a week after the invasion started. And apparently lots of the FSB from from the secret police had already chosen which particularly nice apartments they were going to occupy in Kyiv. I mean, it was, it, there was an assumption on the part of the Russians, and it has turned into this slog on the ground. But yes, it does have these extraordinary elements of, of very high technology. One of the surprises is perhaps too strong, it, but one of the things that really, I think, has, has struck a lot of people is the role of drones. They were being talked about, and their military importance is being talked about, but the ways in which drones have been used, the adaptations that Ukrainians, for example, have made to drones, they're now producing their own through 3D printing, the ways in which social media have been used both as as the both for disseminating propaganda and misinformation, but also used to pinpoint where the enemy are. I think that's been been very striking. So no, it is a war that that both harkens back and looks looks to the future.
0: Was that true of World War One? Were people struck by the same strange mix of old and new when watching events play out in the in the nineteen teens?
1: Yes, I think they were. You know, we tend to think of the First World War as very much an infantry war on the ground. But what was happening, and was happening before the First World War, but really, of course, as wars will do, expanded enormously, and, and the rate of development of, of new technology sped up. Things like the machine gun, which had been developed in the, in the late nineteenth century, but were, were, became much more important in the course of the war than anyone had imagined they would, and also the uses that was were put to the new technology of the airplane. You know, if you look at the change in aircraft between 1914 and 1918, it's absolutely extraordinary: the range, the power the fact that they become armed, the fact that they're capable of dropping bombs. I mean, the tank is another example. And so, yes, the First World War, I think, saw things that, that people hadn't thought would be important becoming enormously important, and, and at sea with submarines. Submarines were, were novelty in 1914. By 1918, they were part of every major navy.
0: The mostly disquieting history of World War One has been invoked frequently by policymakers and military officers and observers of all kinds since the start of the war in Ukraine. And even before, I'm curious for your reactions to the various analogies and and the way that they've been applied. And the first of these that stands out is from General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's often talked about World War I, to warn about the costs of a long war, and to sort of implicitly argue that we should be looking to end this war in Ukraine sooner rather than later, even if that means limiting Ukrainian objectives to some degree. He's often pointed out that even in, in the war's second year, the battle lines have hardened in a way that looks a lot like, you know, the first couple of years of World War I. And as he notes, things didn't change that much after that moment, and yet the human toll was enormous. Is that the right reading of World War I? How, how would you make sense of that history and that analogy as we watch Ukraine today?
1: I, I think he's right. And I think it isn't just the human cost of the war, which is, what, is, of course, what we should always focus on, but it's also what the war did to societies, what the war did to economies, what the war did to political regimes. And by the end of the Second the First World War, Russia had fallen into pieces. The Tsarist regime had gone and, and a civil war had broken out. Austria-Hungary had disappeared. The Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, was about to disappear. And in, in a number of countries, Italy, Germany, for example, there, there were violent demonstrations and protests. So it was a time of, of tremendous turmoil, and that was a direct result of the First World War. And so, yes, I think General Millet is right. The problem always is to end a war as the losses mount. And it's very, very difficult. After the first year of the war, the first few months of, of, of the 1914-18 war, saw so some of the highest casualties. And very difficult for governments and generals then to turn around to their publics and say, we think we should stop now. No one's going to win. Um, there's going to be a compromise. And, of course, you had you know, the, the fear of public opinion, but also the, the hope that they you know, they'd renew the fighting in the spring and then they'd renew the fighting again and, and there would be victory. And I think there is a terrible logic, as as Klausowitz said to war that they just drag on and it's very difficult to stop them. How the Ukrainian war will stop, I think, is is still very much an open question. But it took four years for the First World War to stop.
0: You noted that Vladimir Putin had assumed that he would be in Kiev, his forces would be in Kiev and within a few days. There were, of course, lots of policymakers and leaders in the beginning of of the First World War who thought the war would be quick and and short and decisive. Why do leaders always seem to make that same mistake? It seems like a kind of simple study of history would would warn you against it, and yet we fall into it again and again.
1: I think one reason is there's a fascination with the military, but but also, I think, because that's their job in a way, but also with, with political leaders in the decisive battle you know, we look back at, at great big battles like the Battle of Cannae that the Romans fought against Hannibal. And we look back at the Battle of Waterloo and we look back at you know some of these great victories. What we should remember is that war is often won not by these smashing victories, but by, by attrition. And in fact, the Carthaginians and Hannibal won the Battle of Cannae, but lost the war. And the Germans won big battles at the beginning of the First World War, but lost the war. And, and it was through attrition. But I think it's very hard for for people to to imagine that. And I think the hope always is that, you know, we've got a sure formula for for victory. And I think also, I think, with with the military in the First World War and and possibly with with the military today, I mean, their job is to bring victory. We could also argue their job is to fight defensive wars, but that's, I think, rarely been seen as attractive as an offensive war. Um, And I think, you know, it's the job of the military to think of, of the ways in which they can bring victory. And I think what also happened in the case of Ukraine was that Putin and, and many others just did the counting. They looked at what Ukraine had and they looked at what Russia had. I mean, Russia was bigger in terms of population, amounts of military um, aircraft, you know, military equipment. I mean, all of these measurements. And people just looked and thought, well, you know, when you actually look at it, there's no way Ukraine can deal with it. And, and what, of course, was more difficult to measure but became very apparent was important were questions of morale and questions of command and questions of logistics, where it turned out the Ukrainians actually had great strengths and the Russians did not.
0: You note in in your new essay, and quoting you here, that the longer a conflict lasts, the more important allies and resources become. When you look at the prospects of both sides in a long war in Ukraine, I think you can read it in a couple different ways. On the one hand, this looks pretty good for the Ukrainians, the industrial base of its supporters within the U.S. and Europe, and East Asia is certainly bigger than than that of Russia. you know, Russia has not exactly unstinting support from a few countries, including China. But on the other hand, you can tally global GDP or population and look at the reactions of large parts of the global South especially and see a lot more ambivalence about punishing Russia and a very different view of the war in Ukraine. So as you look at the dynamics of these coalitions and the dynamics of attrition in, in the two world wars, what does that tell us about what might play out As the war in ukraine goes on
1: seems to me not yet clear which side has has the balance of resources Um, russia has been getting help from a number of countries and of course it's almost impossible given the size of Russia and, and how many land borders it has to stop equipment getting into russia um you know and i think i think that's something that the western powers have recognized on the other hand ukraine has received a great deal of support perhaps a surprising amount of support from the european union but above all from the united states And of course, the key questions in the next months and and possibly years are going to be which side can continue to get the resources it needs um, and can keep up the fight. And of course, one of the big concerns, I think, must be for the Ukrainians and for those who support them is what happens in the next American presidential election. You know, this, this again is a moment of where politics matters and who is actually in office matters. And at the moment, um, American president, President Biden, is committed to supporting Ukraine. His successor might be a Republican who may not be committed. We don't know yet. It's, it's very, very difficult to tell. So I think you know, at the moment, I would say that you know, Ukraine is getting enormous amounts of support, which has made it capable of continuing to fight. But how long that support will last and whether Russia will be able, another question mark over Russia, whether Russia will be able to continue to get the materials and equipment it needs. And a big question there will be, how much will China want to support it? You know, the Chinese are now sponsoring this African peace delegation. And I think, you know, the signals that are seen to be coming from Beijing is the Chinese would very much like to see this war over.
0: We'll be back after a short break. Roman and Littlefield is the proud co-publisher of Brookings Institution Pressbooks. Recently, Brookings published Ukraine's Revolt, Russia's Revenge, by Christopher M. Smith, told through an eyewitness account by a U.S. diplomat in Kiev. This is the true story of Russia's brazen attempt to undo Ukraine's democratic revolution in 2013. Smith uncovers previously unpublished reporting by seasoned U.S. diplomatic and military professionals while diving into a wealth of information on Ukrainian high-level and street-level politics, a broad analysis of the international context, and vivid descriptions of people and places in Ukraine during the Euromaiden revolution. Purchase this book and many others at Roman.com. That's R-O-W-M-A-N.com. Or from your favorite online bookseller. One really striking change in the rhetoric about the war in the United States and Europe, especially between, let's say, a year ago and now, is how we talk about the rest of the world. I think There was a moment early in the war when the message, at least, was that the entire free world was uniting behind Ukraine and Russia was going to be isolated. That has changed a lot as we have seen a wider variety of reactions from countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia who just see things differently. Did that surprise you given the history of the two world wars that you've studied more more closely than anyone? I think we, we call them world wars, but obviously they affected some geographies much more intensely than others. And I imagine that there was a, a kind of more complicated set of reactions than the least kind of, you know, mythologized history of those wars suggests.
1: Yes. I think, I think there is a mythologized history. That, you know, it was good against evil, and uh, particularly the Second World War. I mean, we have more, more mixed feelings about the First World War, but even at the time, people thought the First World War was about matters of great principle. You know, it was seen as, as a war of democracy against tyranny. You don't have to agree with that, but that's how people talked about it at the time and, and immediately after the First World War. What, of course, is different today is there are far more independent countries great many parts of Africa and Asia and the Americas had little choice about whether they went to war in the First and Second World Wars because they were part of great Western empires or part of the Japanese Empire. And so they simply were brought into the war without any really very much consultation, a bit more in the Second World War. I think there was an assumption in the West that this was so clearly, in the case of the Ukraine war, that this was so clearly wrong so clearly against international law, that the world would rally around and condemn Russia immediately. And I think that was a certain insensitivity and, and obliviousness to some of the many concerns of countries in Africa, for example. I mean, a lot of Africans have said, and I think with, with justification, that the West and the rest of the world didn't pay much attention and hasn't paid much attention to some of the dreadful wars that are going on in Africa, continue to go on in the Great Lakes region. And so, why should so we, they suddenly get worried about a war that's happening in Europe. Now, I happen to think that that, that attitude could be challenged and should be challenged. And, and in fact, the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations made a very eloquent speech at the beginning of the war, in which he said an, an unjustified invasion is a worry for us all. It doesn't matter who's doing it or where it's happening. In fact, it is a very bad precedent and, and there is a very important principle at stake here. But I think it's understandable that a lot of the rest of the world would think, this is a war in Europe, what does it have to do with us? And I think Western powers have perhaps not been as good at explaining and and dealing with that France as as they could have been. They've they've tended just to assume the world would follow on.
0: One other dimension of this war that seems familiar from that history is the debate about diplomacy. And whether we should be talking while also fighting, how diplomacy affects the battlefield, how we think about negotiations. This has become a, a controversial topic in the context of Ukraine, but I know that there were moments in certainly the First World War, and I believe the second as well, when there was a kind of debate about what kind of diplomacy and what kind of negotiations would make sense. What is the history of, the, of that debate? How did this question of, of diplomacy and fighting while talking figure into those, those conflicts? And what does that tell us about what the role of diplomacy could be in Ukraine today?
1: I think diplomacy was more possible in the First World War than in the Second. In the Second World War, after the Casablanca meeting in 1943, the Allies had a policy of unconditional surrender. And so basically they said, we, we're not going to talk. They said to the, the enemy nations, you surrender and, and that's it. In the First World War, I think there was more opening and more possibility for diplomacy. And there were various peace feelers sent out and there were, attempts by President Woodrow Wilson of the United States and attempts by the Pope at the time to try and and bring the two sides together, which didn't get anywhere because both sides, one of the problems always, I mean, I believe strongly in diplomacy, and I think you should always be willing to talk, but both sides in the conflict have to be willing to talk. And one of the problems in the First World War was that when the Allies were perhaps willing to talk about making some sort of agreed peace, the Germans and their Allies weren't, and, and vice versa, And the same thing during the Cold War with the United States and China. It took them a very long time to both want to talk at the same time. And in the current conflict, it seems to me that at the moment, there is very little willingness on the part of the Russians to talk. And as the war goes on, I think there will be less willingness on the part of the Ukrainians to talk.
0: You note in your pieces just how rare it is that a leader accepts defeat without a true threat to the homeland or the capital being seized or some really decisive victory that makes it indisputable that the, that the cause is lost. When you look at wars across history, but especially World War I, what can you see about how leaders make this decision about when to stop fighting or what causes them to give up in the end?
1: I think it depends on the type of war and the type of society. I mean, I think the century of total war, we, we saw some total all out wars in the, in the 19th century, American Civil War, for example, and certainly the first and second world wars make it very difficult to think of stopping, make it very difficult to think of, of saying, let's let's try and get a settlement because the, the stakes have become so high. I mean, it is possible to have limited wars, and there were limited wars in the 18th century, where you fight until you grabbed a bit of land you want, and then both sides decide, okay, well, that's it. You know, we've wasted enough. This was certainly true of the European limited wars. We've wasted enough resources. We've managed to hold on to a bit. We've got a bit that we want. Let's sit down and make peace. But what made it easier was it wasn't that many people involved in the discussions. And of course, in, in wars which involve a great deal of passions and involve the public, then it becomes, I think, more difficult to settle for anything less than, than full victory. So what, at what point do leaders in the sort of total wars that we've seen, and I think we're possibly seeing in, in Ukraine, what, at what point do they decide that they want to make peace when possibly their own domestic opinion begins to fracture, when you begin to get challenges to the regime, and, and in the case of Russia in 1917, the overthrow of the regime, or when defeat is so absolute. There's clearly no prospect of fighting on, which was the case with Japan and Germany in the Second World War. But in the case of Italy in the Second World War, I think what you got was a fracturing of support from Mussolini and a sense that there is no point us staying in this war. We're gaining nothing from it. We're being devastated. And so it depends on the type of war, it depends on the type of society, and, and it depends on how prepared actually those on, on the winning side are prepared to settle and talk, or will they go for complete victory?
0: But that suggests that the end comes when when and if, if and when, Vladimir Putin feels that his grip on power might be threatened by continuing the war. Is that, is that fair?
1: I think that's a strong possibility. And, um, you know, there are certainly signs in Russia that among the elites, it's difficult to, I think, gauge Russian public opinion at the moment, but certainly some evidence that the Russians are, are becoming concerned about the cost of the war and, and the losses of lives, But among the elites, you're getting now open attacks, not on Putin himself, perhaps, but certainly open attacks on his government, most of them coming from the right, which is concerning for anyone who wants peace, because if Putin is to be replaced, which is possible, people do get replaced, he might be replaced by someone even more determined on on full victory in Ukraine and even less willing to talk. Very hard to tell at the moment.
0: That brings to mind a really powerful and grim observation in your new essay, Let me read a a passage that really stuck with me from the piece. You write, But the past also offers an even darker warning, this time for the future, when the war in Ukraine finally comes to an end, as all wars do. Ukraine and its supporters may well hope for an overwhelming victory in the fall of the Putin regime. Yet if Russia is left in turmoil, bitter and isolated, with many of its leaders and people blaming others for its failures, as so many Germans did in those interwar decades, then the end of one war could simply lay the groundwork for another. As we look to the the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, even assuming a positive outcome for the Ukrainians, what kinds of dynamics will you be looking for, and what would you advise policymakers they think about trying to prevent a similar a similar outcome after, in the wake of the war in Ukraine?:
1: Well, the hardest thing will be to treat Russia generously if it if it eventually concedes. We don't know yet what's going to happen. But it will be hard because of, of the anger and because of what Russia has done and because how it's how it's behaved in Ukraine. I mean, you know, the evidence of, of war crimes is getting stronger and stronger all the time. But Ukraine has a very long border with Russia and doesn't want a Russia um, that goes into something like, um, you know, breakdown of society, becomes a failed state, has a civil war. Um, Russia still remains um, potentially a very important power. I mean, it still has nuclear weapons. It still has a military that is organized. And so these are things that have to be taken into account. And the danger is going to be a uh, Russia that there's this deep sense of bitterness that they have been badly treated, the tendency would be to blame not their own leaders, but the tendency would be to blame outside forces, which is what happened in Germany after the first world war. you know this was this was something that the Germans lost on the battlefield, but this was something that a lot of Germans simply didn't accept, including, of course, key, uh, members of the military who, who very sedulously fostered this idea that Germany had been stabbed in the back by traitors at home and had not really lost on the battlefield. And that played into German politics. It isn't entirely responsible for the rise of Hitler, many other factors came in, but it certainly helped to drive supporters towards the Nazis. And I think that's a danger. And the other danger I see is is the world is going to say, well, that's over and done with. Ukraine is still an independent country, we hope, um, maybe lost some territory there's going to be, I mean, the effort of rebuilding Ukraine. And if the rest of the world sort of loses interest, particularly the Western supporters of Ukraine, then I think I'd be really worried because Ukraine is going to need enormous support. And so the danger is not just a bitter and resentful Russia, whatever happens in Russia, but the danger is also Ukraine, which is impoverished, immiserated, in which people feel that the war has left them in this awful situation and no one's helping them.
0: You wrote a magnificent book about the US-China relationship and about Chinese leaders, Xi Jinping and others in Beijing have been watching the war in Ukraine very, very closely. And I'm curious how, as you look back across wars in the past century and beyond, how leaders make sense of wars happening elsewhere? What do you think Xi Jinping is is thinking as he's watching this war?
1: Well, if I were to guess, I think at the beginning of the war, he probably thought, as other leaders of countries on, on the sidelines in wars have thought, and it, I don't want to sound cynical, but what's in it for us? Should we get involved? Should we stay out? You know, what, is, what is potentially going to help us? But I think you saw this in both the First and Second World Wars. A number of countries made a very conscious choice to stay neutral, and some were able to enforce that. And you had others that joined in when they felt they could see which side was going to win and, and, and felt that they wanted to be able to gain something out of it. So Italy, for example, came into the First World War in 1915 on the Allied side, thinking that this would benefit Italy and help it achieve some of its territorial ambitions. And so I think leaders often make what sound to us like very cold and heartless calculations, but they're thinking of the interests of their own country. In the case of Xi Jinping, I mean, he's very conscious that China is a great power. I think he wants China to to remain and become an even greater power. But was it in China's interest to get involved in this particular war? And I think it must have been something of a quandary because china had very good relations with ukraine it had invested a lot of money in ukraine and the russian invasion was was threatening among other things those those investments but russia is a great power it has a very long common border with china it has resources that china very much needs and i think the calculation he made was was that china would benefit from backing russia not becoming its full ally but playing clever game supporting Russia until it won, which most people thought it would happen very quickly, but yet not alienating Ukraine completely. And I think in a sense, what, what the Chinese are discovering is they've made a bit of a mistake. You know, they, they went perhaps too far at the beginning in strong support for Russia, and they're finding a country that, that doesn't seem to be able to wage war very successfully. But on the other hand, it's left them in a much stronger position vis-a-vis Russia. One of the unintended consequences for Putin of this war is that he has left Russia very much as a junior partner now of China, very much more dependent on China, which is not a good place for Russia to be, given the respective resources of of both countries.
0: What do you imagine policymakers could be doing in the years ahead as they seek to manage and and possibly disrupt the Sino-Soviet convergence that has become really striking in the last few months?
1: I think the China-United States relationship is stronger, in my view, than, than the China-Russia one. For all the tensions between them, the two countries have come a long way together. Their economies are much more intertwined. You have a much better understanding of each other. A great many Americans have been in China, lived in China, speak Chinese, speak Mandarin, and a great many Chinese have studied in the United States. And so the relationship, although tense at times, and, and, and you know people worry about it a great deal, is one that seems to be far more than just you know an alliance of convenience the one with russia I don't know. Um, you know the Chinese and Russians have not been friendly in the past, and so I don't see this relationship as developing in any deep and meaningful way I, I, I don't see the same sort of exchanges and contacts between populations that you had with the United States and China, and I think you know the Russians are uh, and should be very concerned about the fact that they have a dynamic economy just to the south of them they have in the far east far more chinese than russians living and they have a china which is conscious of its own past and conscious of territory it once controlled
0: i'm struck when you look at the the history leading up to the us opening to china and the last time around that U.S. policymakers seemed very both aware of those insecurities and very adept at fanning them, that they kind of went out of their way to point out to policymakers on both sides what the sources of tension and vulnerability might be. And I suppose the advice to young diplomats today would be to look out for similar vulnerabilities and insecurities in, in China and Russia now and look for ways to fan them and exploit them in the years ahead.
1: Or look to ways to assuage them if you you want to establish better relations. And I think what was very important before the American and China friendship, I mean, one of the difficulties they had was both sides didn't know much about each other because they hadn't been in communication for so long. And I think both sides realized they were going to have to try and find out about the other. And and Mao set up a special commission of of generals and, and allowed them to read dangerous periodicals like Time magazine so they could actually get some sense of the United States and, and in, in the United States, Henry Kissinger, who was going to be the key negotiator on it all, spent a summer before he went to China educating himself on China and he borrowed as many books as he could and he tried to find out as much as he could. And I think that's absolutely crucial. If diplomacy is going to succeed, either by putting pressure and exploiting the vulnerabilities of, of, of others but also by trying to sometimes mollify them and, and, and deal with those insecurities, you've got to know. And I think knowing about each other is, is enormously important. And one of the things I think that you know, any country needs to do is make sure that it has a very good diplomatic service, but also that it has the research knowledge and the capacity in its universities to understand the other. And, and, and it's, you know, I was at a conference the other day in London and, and people were very worried about the decreasing numbers of students doing foreign languages you know, and if you don't know foreign languages, you you are cutting yourself off from a source of finding out about other people.
0: I want to close by stepping back even, even further. We recently had General Milley on the podcast, and he talked about these kind of cycles of history as, as he saw it. He noted that today no policymakers or military leaders have any real memory of what Great Power War looks like and the kind of unimaginable toll it takes on societies and that that makes it all the more likely that we'll end up back in another war. How do you see those fears? Do you worry about the same thing?
1: I do, and I guess my short answer would be study history. Um, not looking for clear blueprints and lessons, but simply to warn you that there are times when people have thought everything's going fine, and we know where it's going, and then suddenly something comes along. Um, you know, something goes wrong, and things can go wrong, and we can have accidents in, in, in human affairs, in international relations, and, and in domestic societies. And I do worry, You know, I think what always makes a difference is if you have leaders who have actually themselves been through a great catastrophe, they, they, they perhaps have a direct sense of it. I mean, the leaders in the Second World War knew what had gone wrong in the First World War because they lived through it, a number of them had fought in it, and they lived through the Great Depression, and that's why they wanted to set up, certainly the, the Americans wanted to set up a different sort of economic order in the world to try and avoid that sort of catastrophe again. And so, yes, I think it, it matters that, the, you know, it helps that leaders have experience, but you don't want catastrophes to happen so that they get experience. But what you would like is leaders who have some sense that the world can change, that the world is not a stable place, it, it, you know, and, and you do get this, you know, you get these periods of great complacency, I guess you could almost say, before the First World War, people thought in Europe, oh, we're too civilized. We'll never do a terrible war again like the Napoleonic Wars. That, wars are fought by other people, not by us. And I think we had the same feeling perhaps before the Ukraine war. If wars happen, they'll happen in Africa, but they won't happen in Europe. Uh, There won't be a major ground war in Europe. And I think, you know, there was this sense that it's not going to happen here. And I think, yes, I worry about that because wars, they come, you know, and and we try and avoid them, but we can't always avoid them or we we haven't so far been very good at it. And I think we have to take it very seriously, the possibility of avoiding war now because we can inflict such damage on our world.
0: In studying history, I hope people will start by reading your essay in the new issue of Foreign Affairs, How Wars Don't End, as well as the slew of wonderful books that you've written about much of this history over the last several years. Margaret, thanks so much for the great piece and for joining us
1: today. Well, thank you very much for such a nice conversation.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannan, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zachariah. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.